Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 104 of Drinks with Tony. A quick couple of announcements. First off, starting next week, the show will also air at 6 p.m. on Thursday nights on KPCR 101.9 FM Santa Cruz. So, hello, Santa Cruz, which also means we will be under FCC regulations and we'll have less swears on our interviews. But fear not, hardcore sexual insinuations will still pepper the show. And if you're a radio station who would like to air Drinks with Tony, feel free to get in touch. All right, next on the list, I'm teaching a free creative writing workshop on October 14th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for the Los Feliz Branch Library of the Los Angeles Public Library. As we get closer to the date, go to lapl.org to find out how to sign up for the workshop. That's lapl.org, and that is October 14th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. Free creative writing workshop. And my class, Writing the Screenplay 2, starts Tuesday, September 29th at UCLA Extension. Go to uclaextension.edu. That's uclaextension.edu. And search for Duchesne to find out the prerequisites, cost, etc. Thanks for all. Thanks for listening to all of that. And now, on with the show. This is Douglas A. Martin, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Douglas A. Martin. He's the author of Wolf and also the book uh, Branwell, a novel of a Bronte brother. Hi, Douglas. Hi, Tony. Thanks for having me. I, oh, thanks for coming on. Okay, yeah. I'm, I, I want to keep saying Bronwell because of Bronte, but it's ah. Branwell, and it's messing me up. <laughs> like a bran muffin. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. You, you and and then say, I... Yeah, go ahead. I was just saying, then there's also, like, whether you do Bronte or Bronte, you know, the, mm. the various, like, Irish... Whether or not you honor the umlaut over the E, I guess it is. Um, I never knew that. So we could no. say Bronte and that would be fine? I think that technically that would be more correct. Don't quote me, although I'm being recorded. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when, My friend, when, this is on the record. I know, right? <laughs> I know that like Richard Nash, who was the, who was the editor at South School who acquired the book and editor and publisher actually at the time at South School in uh, 2005 when it had its first um, incarnation. He would always say Bronte, you know, and so. And you know what? I what, took what that I, to be, yeah. Yeah, something. what I find with Richard Nash is he's yeah. usually right. I know. <laughs> <laughs> he's always usually right. I, if the one time out of 100 he's wrong, then so be it. I'm not going to say anything. That's right. Yeah, because I, I was, uh, uh, my book came out through Soft Skull right as he was leaving um, mm -hmm. he passed, he passed it on. He was like, I want this, but I'm leaving. So I'm going to pass it yeah. on and see if they want it. And that's how it got through. But I loved Richard Nash in the day. He's, he's amazing. I mean, I'm, I've, yeah, that was, a, it was sad to see him go for sure. Yeah. Um, so who took, who was, was, it was before Andy Hunter and our Yuka and the current thing. Who was, who knows? I, it was, oh, yeah. it was so, we're talking about soft skull press. It was so like, it was so confused there for a little bit, but it was yeah. just like starting with Sander. I was a, I was a fan since the Sander Hicks days. I used to yeah. buy those. Um, the pamphlets. Know, like, yeah. yeah. And then to actually be published on like 
it, it just I it blew my mind. I got a I got an offer from Softscall. It blew yeah. my mind. Yeah. It doesn't get any better than this, and uh, and it didn't. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> It gets different. It just gets different. This is my experience of like small press independent publishing. And I've worked with like maybe three or four different ones now. And I have like a few still in play and it's just like, no, no one's ideal. It's just like they each have their different strengths. And then it's always like, at what point is the press going to close? Cause it's independent. So it can do what it can, wants to do and it supports you. But then there's always that danger of like, wow, the lights could really go out now. And what's going to yeah. happen. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't feel that way at soft school anymore to me, but yeah. I agree. Yeah. And it's, um, and then the other thing is, I mean, you know, I had no clue what happens when I have a book published. I I thought they were going to have a parade for me down market street and I was going (laughs) to like, you know, people were going to celebrate me. And and it's kind of like when you have a book published, your parents even forget to call you. I know, like, I know. Now we have social media so much more. So everyone's like happy pub day or whatever, but it still feels like an empty gesture. Can you call me and take me out to lunch? If I can get one lunch, if I can get one lunch out of a release of a book that I know is a success. Yeah. I've I've been fortunate in that um, Darcy Steinke, who wrote the introduction to the reprint of Branwell, has been really good about continuing to celebrate me, socially distant celebrate me. She just keeps taking me out for drinks and she's like, at some point, this is going to stop. And then we have like fancy little, you know, six feet apart dinners outside and and she's like, at some point, this is, so this has been like my first like summer of being feted over a book and it's all Darcy because it's, you know, I think in many, many ways it feels like for her, her book as well. She's spent so uh-huh. much time and put so much love into doing the, the forward. But I, like, I have never had expectations that a parade was going to happen. <laughs> I, I published a book of poetry when I was an undergrad at UGA and I was like, oh my God, this is such a big deal. And it was like, nobody cared. None of my professors in the English department was like, so what? You published a book of poetry. I'm like, I'm 21. Like, Give me something, you know? But it was like, no, you're just not, it's not the right poetry publisher. And so I, I feel like I came into it really early, like knowing like, it's not just, uh, it's not just publishing the book. It's like under what particular auspices or, you know, like how it's, how connected it is when it comes out. And you know, and so I, and then I've also had times where I was like, a book is published. I'm like, well, nothing's going to happen and it's going to be okay. Cause all that stuff you're worried about, it's gonna be- Yeah. <laughs> it reminds me when, cause I used to, I used to be obsessed with college radio when I was in high school. Yeah. Those, yeah. those the DJs were gods to me. They were, they were giving me information of like, what is this? I would, I would, li- I would listen to specific DJs. I knew what time of the week they were on. Mm. Then I start. Then I became a college radio DJ. I took all those classes. I got in there, and I couldn't understand why no one was calling me to tell me what a great job I was doing on the request <laughs> line. And it's kind of the same thing. You're just like. And then I had a realization where I'm like, wait a second. How often do I call radio stations when I feel like they're doing a good job? Right. I never did. Yeah. I actually do it now. Like if I'm listening to KXLU in LA, I'll call up and go, you know, that was just a great set. And they'd be like, thanks. Did you have it? What do you want from me? And I'm like, nothing. I just wanted to say hi. And you're having a great set. And it's just like, it blows. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that's, that's really why this is done is that kind of communication, you know? And I mean, to have a couple of books come out in this extremely challenging moment and, you know, like publish and refiguring how it's going to work without 
bookstores or like very, you know, scaled down op- bookstore operations. It's, I've been finding like now like letters and stuff are beginning to come in. And like, to me, it's like, that's the real joy is like, it's not like waking up in the morning and opening the laptop and did I get the times review? It's actually somebody wrote me a really sincere, you know, I feel like it's a little belittling even to say like fan letter, but somebody wrote me a really sincere response to a particularly hard to read and, you know, depressing, difficult book. And then it becomes my job, I think to not even job, but it's like, it's a, it's a joy almost, you know, it's, it's something to look forward to, to like, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write that person back. And so where, whereas before it's like, you know, that kind of exists in this world of rather large abstractions. I feel like for me, it's getting on a more and more personal toehold, you know? I love that. And, and I don't think, um, I don't think people realize when you do write an author, it's important. And yeah. author, even, even authors that, you know, are way, way more big time famous than, you know, you or me, they're actually, yeah. <laughs> they're actually not getting a hundred letters a day. If, if they're, you know, it's, yeah. it's nice to just go, Hey, you know what? I like that book and send them a note. I used to do it through their agent or their publisher when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I'd be like, you know, uh, I forgot. I can't think of any name right now because I'm, you know, but I would say dear blank care of, you know, whatever yeah. publisher. And it would get to them and they would be stoked. And I would get, I would get typewritten letters back and I would, it blew my mind. I'm like, wait, these people are accessible. Yeah. And then, I mean, then there's that thing of like, oh, it means too much to me or whatever. But then I remember when I was in my twenties and reading David Vornarovich's journals when they were first coming out. And it was like the fact that he copied over every letter that he ever received. And that, that was like actually the fuel that kept him going. You know, they're just like, he would keep these shoeboxes of letters. I'd have nothing like shoeboxes of letters, you know? Right. I have my own challenge of like, I want to write back and I want to be sincere. And I, you know, that's my goal, but that becomes its own kind of writing thing. And um, so if I'm not writing back, it's because I'm afraid I'm going to come across as dumb or a disappointment. <laughs> you know, which at the same time, it's beautiful to just let people be disappointed. Yeah. You know, right. <laughs> <laughs> and then they go, oh, wait this is what you're getting. Yeah. yeah. The, um, no, my, my thing was, um, wait, I probably should wait more than three minutes to reply. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, thank now, you. I'm so glad. Now they know. Up. They know at what point you opened it, when you saw it, if you right. reprioritize. You know, it's like really very different. Yeah. It's, in the end, it's just all fun and games in this, in this world of being able to just write. It's just so much fun to yeah. like, yeah, I wait, you know. I don't know what you do, but sometimes I wake up and I'm like, wait a second, I do this? Yeah. <laughs> I wake up and I'm like, how am I going to keep doing this? I oh, oh, do oh, there's that. What too. I'm meant to be doing. Yeah. Like, and so, yeah. yeah. Various yeah. ways to psych myself out to like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get, on, get on the horse again. I think about it so much like exercising and stuff. It's like, oh, I just got to do the reps, you know, I got to go do those reps. And then at some point I'm going to put some more weight on there, you know? <laughs> You know, that is the, that's the best analogy because it's just like, it's all about just showing up even when you don't feel like it. And then all of a sudden you've lost five pounds, but, but it takes a lot. <laughs> yeah. Or you can run the marathon. I mean, you know, when I was, when I first started teaching, I was teaching novel writing and I was like, you don't, you know, you got to do the training, you know, you have to really get in there every day to be able to go front to back in a, in a book. Right. Yeah. The, um, yeah, teach. I, you know, I, I was teaching novel at a UCLA extension for uh, mm-hmm. about three or four years, and those classes were packed. 
until yeah. about 2017, 2018. Then the then we started to drop off. And now uh -huh. I'm on the screenwriting end, so I teach screenwriting, and those classes are packed. So I think everyone thinks they're a screenwriter, but for a while they were all novelists. Be novel. Well, the money has shifted. You know, the 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 populace has caught up to how the money has shifted, right? Yeah, the populace has <laughs> caught up to. Oh, you don't make money as a novelist. No, it's no. just a too noble, many of us, dude. <laughs> Who wants to be noble? Ugh. I know. I know. Yeah, were you around, were you like around or aware of that? I mean, you were here, but were you like tuned in on any level to that publishing paid me whole thing? I was like, I'm not even going to respond because it's like publishing paid me never, you know? Yeah, I I, I did see some of nothing. That. Yeah, I saw some of that, and uh, a friend of mine, Beth Lissick, did hers. I love Beth. Oh Isn't my God. she great? Yeah, she is my one of my earliest heroes. She knows this, and yeah, monkey yeah. girl. <laughs> she did hers and I was like I was really happy that she did hers because she's gone back and forth from indie to main yeah. indie yeah. and and her last book she chose to go indie publisher with her uh, first novel and I I feel and I really loved it I felt like that was a good decision on her end and, yeah and she was it's, telling me the um the changes they wanted to make mm -hmm. for the other stuff and she's just like I can't do this no that that's I mean that I mean when I was you know my first novel was in 2000 and and soft school did that before Branwell Branwell is the second book of mine that soft school did and Sandra Hicks did outline of my lover and I remember like you know I had done like one little poetry thing with Sander and soft school in those very early days and and Sander was you know so such a champion and and really like you know great to me you know like very much a mentor very much like a father figure brother figure and um one of my um touchstones in new york when i moved to new york it's like i could always walk over to suffolk street and go down into the basement and see what sander was doing and at least have a talk for like half an hour and feel like i was still like in the world um so he had he knew, knew that i'd written this novel and he you know i was like i want ira silverberg as my agent this that and the other and he was like i know ira and i'm like oh my god get me to ira you know and so but it, all that to say that like i had this experience of this first book going into those channels and the book that i had written being read and getting notes of what would be expected for it to land or be pitched or be bought to the figures that, you know, I'd be like, I made it as a writer, I can live as a writer. And, um, you know, I got one round of those notes and I was just like, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna write the book. I'm gonna publish the book that I wrote. And I think it was like a couple months later that, um, or maybe just not publish a book, you know? I mean, like I wrote it and it's, maybe it will just be in the notebook and that's where it is. It doesn't have to be published to actually exist. It was, the book was written for not just to be marketed, right? So um, seeing Sander a couple of months later and him asking me like, what's going on with your novel? And I was like, well, nothing really. Cause you know, this, that, and the other. And it was like, I was told don't experiment and this. And, and he was like, we'll publish it, you know? And so like very early I had this, this um, understanding that like certain people will take the chance and you can do it within your way, you know? And then there's the other route of like, if you want it to be at that level, you know, it's kind of like a movie with like a screener, like a test screening, right? Oh, <laughs> you know oh, what I mean? Like oh, when you get I the comic cards, comic cards yeah, for yeah. the audience, right? Yeah. I don't want the comic cards. You know? Yeah. But what, what does that, what does that audience know anyway? Know, they, right? they were at a mall one day and a flyer. <laughs> that's, that's the credibility of these people on your, on, on, who are making decisions on your storytelling. Right.
Why? I mean, some, sometimes there's truth there. Sometimes there's truth and you know it, but I mean, also this is like a whole kind of like, well, it was a, a book of poetry, but it should be a novel or, you know, right. you read it as a novel and it should be a memoir, you know, so you can talk about it in this other kind of way, which was, would not be in the spirit of the book. And that would be just, I was just thinking like, what would you do if you just took a segment of people in in a mall, you know, pre pandemic when, when people were around each other uh, and, and, and you took them to go see Mulholland Drive with David Lynch and you wait and you waited for their comments and you adjusted the story to their comments. Oh no. It's, this would ruin. And yes, and exactly. And we would not have Mulholland Drive if HBO hadn't said like, no, this isn't going to happen. You know what I mean? Like that was actually, right. this was the thing that he was trying to shoot to have the next HBO, the next Twin Peaks on, on HBO. And they're like, no. And I mean, Lynch is such an artist that he's like, I have all this footage. How am I going to make something else of it? How am I going to put it together in a way that's going to be its own experience? Um, huge, huge inspiration. David well, I, 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 if I, I ever don't want to wake up in the morning and think I can keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I didn't even know that history regarding, uh, I mean, I vaguely remember it, but um, it's so interesting because the beauty of no, when people say you can't do something, there's, there's something where people, I, sometimes I have an insatiable drive just because people go, you can't do that. And I go, Oh, you want to watch? Right. Right. And then my whole focus goes there. (laughs) And, And it's just, I get so happy when people are, when I have people that are kind of bullshitters in my life and I go, mm-hmm. Oh, okay. One, we're probably not friends anymore. <laughs> Thank you for being the biggest asshole in the world. Cause I'm, yeah. I'm steering right into that. That's exactly me. I want to start from where I'm told. I, I want to start with what can I get away with? That's kind of where I want to start, you know? Oh, I like that. Yeah. I always think about too, like before even Mulholland drive, like the lost highway, I think was, I think it was lost highway. No, it was the twin peaks film actually i I won't go on my lynch tangent for much longer but like the the firewalk with firewalk with me was which my favorite movie actually but um was such a disaster that i remember when he then made lost highway he's like i will never go above ground again and i was like yes yes that's right i'm gonna like write my book from the basement (laughs) yeah oh my god lost highway lost highway is probably my favorite by him not just because it shows Patricia Arquette's full rear end, yeah. uh, which is just burned into my psyche forever <laughs> and ever. In two, in two different wigs, right? Is that what it, I, I can't remember? I mean, I mean, like, I mean, I'm sure we see her naked in a blonde wig and also naked in a, as a brunette. You know? Yeah, I used to have such a crush on her. Yeah. And my, uh, um, my, my ex-wife, was, uh, she did makeup for um, uh, David Arquette and uh, Courtney Cox's wedding. When they were, huh. in, I lived in San Francisco, and they, and they did it in San Francisco. So I was bringing all her gear up, you know, to the to the penthouse suite of whatever hotel we were in, <laughs> and the hotel thought I was paparazzi. What I, do I look like paparazzi? Yeah, but I, uh, you know, and so I brought her stuff in. I'm like, oh my god, and there's Patricia Arquette. And I was just like, ah, oh. it was like yeah. our eyes didn't lock. She didn't even look at me, and then I walked out, and I was married anyway, so it didn't yeah. matter. <laughs> yeah, she. I mean. I've been like an admirer of her since True Romance. I wanted to be that character in True Romance so bad. I went and got my lunchbox. And I mean, Uh I just really like she, you know, and then to see her in a Lynch film. And, um, but I think now she's one of the most incredible American actresses that we have. I mean, the work that she's doing now is like 
that escape movie. She's just she was phenomenal. So good in She's that. so phenomenal. Yeah. And it, and it's and it, well, I used I was you know these um these people who keep bringing up oh wait um people are upset about certain actors playing certain roles you know and it's just like yeah. they're actors you know and and so I was like I got on my soapbox in a jokey way and I was like look. I can't believe Patricia Arquette played an ugly person because you know how many ugly people there are out there <laughs> that could have had that part. They could have got another ugly woman, but no, they got Patricia Arquette and made her ugly. Yeah. In the end, I'm being completely facetious because I want to see Patricia Arquette ugly and digging into that role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think it's, I think, <laughs> I think it's just like the power of her to be able to be there and just be like kind of, I mean, I'm sure there's like makeup going on as well. It's mm-hmm. like Charlize Theron and Monster or something. But I mean, I think part of the power too is just like, actually you're, it's not about being ugly. It's like, you're going to get a portrayal by a movie star who doesn't look like a movie star at this yeah. moment, you know? So. Oh yeah. my God. And the, that, that movie was so good. That was a series. I can't remember who put that together, but I remember yeah. just being utterly, transfixed on it the whole time it's one of the it's one of the better things that i've seen in a long long time um it it resonated a lot with me because i it was like right around i watched a little bit of it right around the time that wolf was coming out and i was thinking a lot about like why are you trying to do what you're trying to do why are you doing this thing based on a real thing and that was one of the things that i saw was like this gets it exactly right you're going in there for a reason you know and I, i feel like that that is so clearly done like you're giving a different dimension to these lives outside of the what you know the the bullet points for the newspaper story you know it's getting to the hearts of it's getting to the hearts of the characters where yeah. um you know even characters that we probably you know we probably shouldn't like we actually like because there are redeeming qualities even in even in awful people sometimes where yeah where we can go where we can look in and go oh my god i would never want to hang out with them in my life but yeah. i get why they do certain things it's so, I mean, just in that pilot when he's on the phone with his mother and it's just like one scene, but you know, I, yeah, I just, I think that, um, yeah. I mean, I, I wrote that, I started writing that book in a time where I felt like there wasn't um, a kind of real, um, you know, examination of why true crime was interesting to people. And I think that the culture is caught up to that. I think there's a lot more books now about, you know, um, these stories are sensational on one level for the newspaper, but there's also really deep things inside of them. <laughs> that, yeah. They brought it to this, you know, this cultural head, you know, it's, yeah. um, see, I, I'm not, a, I, I get, I get freaked out about serial killer stuff. There, yeah. It's serial killer stuff freaks me out. Cause I don't, I don't know. I don't know how the brain goes there. And I yeah. don't want to know how the brain goes right. there. Right, right, right. Um, and then, so that's a lot of the true crime doesn't doesn't uh, excite me. But uh, I don't know. It's something about prison. If some, if, if there's a, if, and it's probably because of my weird background. But if you can escape from a prison, I just kind of sit there and go, I want to watch that, yeah, even yeah, if it's bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah, I don't know if it's because I'm part claustrophobic, you know. So I'm like, I can never oh. be in there. I would have to get out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Transfix yeah. on that. Right. Yeah. Where. You know, there were times when I used to feel like just being on the metro in LA or whatever, or even I was in New York in um, in uh, October last year mm-hmm. for the first time, actually, like as an adult. And mm-hmm. I was on the because you're in New York, right? I am in New York. Yeah, yeah I was on the L train during commute, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> and I I was like going, okay, because you know you're just pushed up like sardines against other people, and the whole trip. 
back to where I was staying in Brooklyn. I was like, everything's fine. It's going to be fine. Yeah. We're underwater, but it doesn't matter. It's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah, those were really fun. I mean, that, you know, you had the experience of that. It was really fun right after 9-11 to be on those trains, like stalled in the tunnel. And, you know, <laughs> just like, yeah, like, those were great days. Yeah. Oh, my you know, God. I mean, I think there's so much of that about this city that, that you know, you, I wouldn't say you even numb yourself to, but you just kind of like you, you're living on a different level. Like, I feel like myself... I have a lot of claustrophobia as well. Like elevators are hard for me and um, rooms without windows are really hard for me. And um, so, yeah, on those crowded trains, I just kind of like, if it's too crowded, I just have to get off at the next stop and just walk, you know, no matter what, Um, or go into kind of like a catatonic state where you just kind of like realize you're actually in survival mode. It's kind of like the same thing as like the plane taking off. You know, I don't know. For me on a plane, it's like also claustrophobia, right? Because you're not just going to open the door and leave now. But yeah, there's a lot of um, dialing into like, you know, your cells <laughs> just like being yeah. situated down into the most like placid place within yourself you can find till till you can open your eyes again yeah, yeah it's almost like um <laughs> like it puts me in the question mode of i might die what have i done with my life yeah. have, has it achieved everything it needs to achieve <laughs> yeah. i'm always like and what is the last song i'm going to be listening to when this plane goes oh. down yeah and it's so, like, you actually have a soundtrack yeah. I mean, like different times I was like, this is, yeah, this is like my travel music, you know, it makes so much sense to me if it goes down here. Uh-huh. All right. I just went into the music. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then at the same time we can look, we can go, well, this would be a big bump for our publishers. Right. You know, exactly. it's just like, I mean, death <laughs> is like one of the biggest publicity stunts there is. The, um, when I was in New York though, cause I never really got into David Bowie. I would, I even saw uh-huh. David Bowie when I was um, in 1990. Uh, I went to see David Bowie with my girlfriend Jasmine at the time. Uh And I knew maybe two songs from him. Which ones? Like Let's Dance and um, China Girl. You know, that would be it. China Girl, yeah. yeah. Um, And I don't even know if he played those when I saw him. But he was kind of off my radar because I was just in that music snobbery. um, Yeah punk rock and ska you know just that young mm-hmm. like this mm-hmm. it, uh, if it's on mtv it means nothing to me it's death unless it's on 120 minutes and even then that's <laughs> oh, even that's, then yeah yeah, they yeah. sold it's out like, they're on 120 minutes exactly <laughs> cut them off so um but like about a year and a half ago i went i should reconsider david bowie mm-hmm. and so i started getting after his death or before the death after his death Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't even listen to Lazarus really until about a year ago. So this all comes back <laughs> to being in New York because because yeah. David Bowie, Aladdin Sane, was my uh, was my soundtrack for the subways. Huh, uh-huh. And so when I got up in the morning to do uh, to to go where I needed to go, it was uh, it was the whole Aladdin Sane record. And now uh-huh. that record's kind of my soundtrack to yeah. the New York subway system. Good. Yeah. It's, yeah. A soundtrack. We need soundtracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And it's one, it brings me back there Two, It doesn't, you know, I, I remember the panic I had some of the panic yeah. I had on the subways. Um, especially when I would be on an express, but I got on the wrong trains to places yeah. where I had no clue where I was. And it's like, Oh, this is an express train for 20 minutes out to the middle of nowhere. Yeah. I made How a mistake. I, I made a mistake and it's two, two hours later. I'll fix it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's the worst. It's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just, I mean, I was just like thinking further about the, the soundtrack, but um, yeah. 
Yeah, and yeah, <laughs> I feel like a, I mean, I mean, I think like you know, like at different times that the this the soundtrack like in my life, like I'm, I'm remember the first time I had a real experience of that was that being like um, an undergraduate, and I'm gonna take my f- Italian class over the summer because I don't want to go back home, you know, to Middle Georgia and whatever, but I have to get up at 6 a.m. every day over the summer to go to do these Italian lessons, which I didn't even want to take Italian. I was just too stubborn that like I'd had some French in high school and I refused to pay the $10 for the placement test that you would have to take to keep taking French. So, so I'm like, oh, I'll just do Italian. And I really was not suited for it. I'm a lazy speaker. I, the enunciation was hard for me to like get excited and at 6 a.m. Right. in the morning. Um, but Bjork, um, that first debut album, I would just get up every morning, put it on, and just keep moving. Just keep moving. <laughs> what, what were the songs on that? Because I remember when Bjork went solo, and I, w- I was, I had to, now she's someone else I had a huge crush on, too. Yeah, of course. Um, human behavior. Yes. Yeah, human nature. Human nature, and yeah. um, Ven- her Venus as a boy, which is really big for me. Yeah. Violently Happy is on there. It's a really good record. And it's like, uh, there's, I think there's a song called Airplane even. It's just like beautifully put together and you could just have a whole. But what I was really thinking about even at the same time on a different track with that was, I was going to say earlier in the conversation, I made the analogy of like working out to writing, which is, you know, I mean, I'm not a bodybuilder or anything by any stretch of the imagination. I do do a little bit of running for my heart at this point in my life. But, um, but honestly, the soundtrack is what taught me, allowed me the same kind of discipline to write. Like when I was first learned writing in the 20, my twenties and I was like, this is a discipline and I have to do it every day and I have to sit down. Part of the way that I did that is I would just put the same record on every day. And it was like, I just have to sit at the desk until I'm at the end of the record. And then, you know, that becomes its own kind of like opens you up into the space that you can get down into and do what you need to do. It's, I found like it to be a very effective, you know, kind of gauzing of the world in a kind of way. Um, I like that a lot. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, there was two particular records in two different places. It was like every day and, you know. It was Bjork and then what was the other one? Well, Bjork was my, got me the, got me to my D in Italian. Oh, right, right, right. Okay, okay. <laughs> Which I, I got the D because I had perfect attendance, so the professor bumped me up from an F. <laughs> and I also got a candy bar for the perfect attendance. So, oh, wow. What um, kind of candy bar? Toblerone. <laughs> oh, that's a good one. If you would have said yeah. Snickers, I would have been like, they chewed mm, you. No, Toblerone, no, no, that's no, a Toblerone. good one. Toblerone. I think it was my first taste ever of a Toblerone. I was like, okay, not a bad summer. Yeah. Um, no, so in... And George is still like teaching myself to write kind of through a diary. It was the second Tori Amos record under the pink. Uh-huh. I just really listened to that every, every time that I'd sit down to write my pages in my journal at the kitchen, the little desk I had in the kitchen in my first apartment away from home. And then when I first moved to New York, it was coincidentally the second Liz Fair record, you know, oh, depending cool. on how you count them. So maybe the second Liz Fair commercial record, it would have been a whip smart. You know. And that, and Liz, was Liz Fair on Shimmy Disc Records too? I'm throwing very obscure yeah. out there right now. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that. Oh, I, okay. I mean, I know Girly Sound. I know the idea of Girly Sound. I know um, was Matador was um, the Exile in Guyville, which also was like a big writing. Th- I mean, I've always thought a lot about writing through music for sure. Yeah. This isn't like a a fudge thing right now, but um, 
her talking in early interviews about how she had no idea how to structure a record. And so she just, you know, got the Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street. And she has like, where are my analogy songs? And when I wrote my first novel, I did the same thing. It's like, this is a, the opening page of a, somebody's novel. Where's my opening page within these pages that I have? Yeah. And it's such a great way to essentially learn how to write a novel. Yeah. Well, a great way to learn how to write a novel is to write a novel. But at the same time, <laughs> you you know, it. it's just like, how do we, how do we get ourselves yeah. at the desk? Yeah. And how do we sit there? Because the novel's really sexy for about 20 or 30 pages. And then yeah. it's like, wait a second. This yeah. is the dumbest idea I've ever had. And that's when, that's when if you stick through that, then you, then you know you're a novelist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I learned a lot that way. I mean, I would learn like, okay, but I don't, now this whole other thing is happening. These other characters, where's your version of that? You know, you've yeah. got to come up with some like, um, essentially a subplot. I wasn't calling it a subplot at the time in my life, but you yeah. know, but you got to have this other, other side story, you know, and how often is it going to come back? What's the rhythm going to be at it, of it, you know? What was the, uh, what was the culture shock of growing up in Georgia and then moving to New York? Um, it was extreme yeah. <laughs> for sure. What, what year was it? Um, well, so I successfully, I would say, moved to New York in um, to 99, 99, 98, 99. It was 98, 99. Yeah. I tried a couple of times. I think I tried in 97 and then I tried to move to San Francisco. It was really more hard. It was hard for me to leave Georgia and I never liked Georgia. I remember moving to Georgia at five, my family moving there and being like, oh my God, my life is over. We're moving to Georgia. Really? Um, Where did you move from? Well, that's what I say. Little did I, I had so little perspective actually that we were moving from Ohio to Georgia. So actually it was not that, you know, <laughs> but in my mind, it was just like, we're yes. going south. We're going south. I was like in a panic, you know, at five. It was like my first memory, like my life is over. But um, so I never, I never felt, at home in Georgia per se, but um, when I went up, when I did go off to college, um, when I went to UGA in Athens and, you know, had that group of friends that I had there and what I, an artistic life that I cultivated and created for myself, that was really, really hard to leave. With all of its limitations, it was really hard to leave because I, it was the first place that I truly ever felt home, you know, and, and like home, there were hard parts about it as well, you know, like, Am I more than this? Do I ever leave home? Do I do right. what my parents did? You know, is this enough? Um, where's ambition in this? And so that was a struggle. And then financially, it was a nightmare. And um, I was really, really lucky in that when I made that move that stuck in like 98, 99, I had a couple of um, people that I didn't, what wasn't even friendly with in, um, Athens who, who had gone to UGA we were in different circles and they had already moved there and they were from quite well-off families and essentially they supported me these two um, women these two friends of mine they became really close friends of mine allowed me to stay in their apartment for really long for over a year like getting my footing and you know, there was a lot of like taking me out to dinner. And so essentially a, a patron system and a mentors and I'm internally grateful. I mean, they were really, really close relationships, but I don't think it could have never happened without that, without somebody actually opening their doors to me. And I think, you know, other people have different versions of that in their life. You have family that's there or you, you know, you have that kind of thing. 
I didn't, but I was fortunate in that I, you know, there were these people who wanted to know me and wanted to be around me and, you know, thought that it was cool that I was going to just try to be a writer. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. They wanted to be, they wanted to be artists themselves. One was a photographer and so, you know, she got it and, um, you know, I mean, they were not, relationships not without their complexity and codependencies and even user qualities for sure, to be very frank, you know? Um, yeah. But, that, and I, like, I, I don't know Athens, Georgia, but I know the, I know that, you know, this is something that it was a cultural hub for music, for so much, and yeah. so in, in to be in a place like that that just really feels juicy and thriving, and a small community where you probably knew everybody and everyone had their place, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's like that's a great a village. And to be like really the only writer. That was the other the other thing. Uh -huh. Like I would be like in the, I was fortunate or like I was like cool in that I was in the music scene and I was able to also, you know, like perform my poem at the 40 Watt Club or whatever the rock uh -huh. show or I was thinking recently, um, you know, and then there was a moment where like a art had kind of happened, started to happen there in a different way. Like some gallerist from Atlanta was like, Athens going to be also the place for art. And so she came down essentially and scouted talent and got a couple of my friends to have this big show at a gallery in Atlanta. And they're like, and what's more, they have this poet friend and it all happens together. So we're bringing him up to the gallery to read poems, you know? And it was, so it was like that kind of thing for sure. Like, I mean, it, ha it has, it has, and it had its legacy, but it's also had lots of waves of reinventing itself within that and making itself new again. Um, and I think a big part of that is just like it's when I was there it was financially viable. I mean, you could work like a, a part-time job three times a week, three hours and find a place to live. And the majority of your day could be devoted to working on your art, you know, whether it be painting or music and or writing in my case and some other people's cases and then see your friends at night go to a $2 movie at the student center. <laughs> you, know, like, you could reap all the rewards of the college itself and be outside of the college. So it was like, um, it was a productive experience of the margin for sure. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. And then, and then to, and then to get to New York city, it, it must've felt, I mean, what was it like trying to sink into the culture of New York city and trying to find like your friends and your tribe was, was that just, you know, after being in Athens, Georgia, what was that like? Um, um, it was extremely frustrating. And I mean, and part of the, my solution became like, I will just go back to school. Cause I'm somebody who's like, you know, um, when I was growing up, my escape from my home was to be able to go to school. Like summer was the worst time for me ever. And um, so I carried that mindset into even, you know, my ad young adulthood in New York. And it's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't really have a circle. I'm kind of casting about. I don't, you know, um, it's gone far enough with like sleeping on somebody's couch. You're like really going to have to start paying them right now. But if you pay them, you want time to write. And, you know, so I was like, ah, I know if I'm going to stay in New York, I have to go to school. I'll go to an MFA program. And that's what I did. And essentially then I kind of went there to try to find my people. And I did, I was able to do that. And then, um, the cycle repeats itself after getting two years after that is what am I doing? I've already published a book. What's going to be the next book. And that kind of within the next couple of years led to was the genesis of, and much of the heart and the bedrock of Branwell. It's kind of the psychology that I put into the character of Branwell.
uh, that there's a and the, and I remember, and there's a beauty to that where you got to just go visit Sander Hicks. Yeah, I, you know, the, I I think we've we're start we've lost where you could just kind of hang out with. Um, well, well, we're in pandemic, so we're lost hanging right. out with anyone. But right. <laughs> when you get to a certain point, especially trying to live in a city like New York, you're just trying to hustle so much. You, uh, from what I understand, tell me if I'm wrong. But okay, <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like when I was, in, and like, I'm just I, one. My opinion is just one person's, but I'll tell you if I think you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you have more experience of the New York experience than I do, way more. Um, but it's the hustle to try to keep the living going and to try to keep everything going. Where, uh, where you're trying to pay your bills and then get those just beautiful, relaxing moments of, I'm just going to go sit. I'm going to go sit at my yeah. friend's place and we're just going to, you know, chat and maybe, and he might make me try to uh, bind some, some galleys or whatever, or do some mail stuff. But I would have done it. I totally yeah. would have done it. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if this is like the, you know, you create the pattern. So then it happens again. I don't know how this kind of imprinting happens, but you know, that was like something was like, this makes a lot of sense to me. And it was maybe like my adult New York version of like, you know, you're lost, go to the library, which is what I would yes. do in, you know, in Georgia, even when I was like frustrated with my artist friends, like, okay, well, just go to the library because there's all these other writers in the world out there. And, you know, here, here's where their books have been gathered. Here's where their calling cards are. So there's always like another door, you know, or window to go through. And, um, but I was, you know, and then with having that with Sander, like, you know, it really was like you're underwater. If the feeling is like being underwater so much and it was like a moment of coming up for air, you yeah. know, because it's just somebody that sees you. And um, and then there, somehow that's, that um, dynamic replayed itself very fortuitous for me, for, fortuitously for me. Um, after my MFA, I had a relationship like that with Darcy Steinke, who wrote the introduction to, to Branwell. I would go, even though I was no longer a student at the new school, she was the assistant director and she had open office hours and I would go and talk to her. And that's kind of like where the idea of, you know, that was even told that there was a Bronte brother happen. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm really interested in this, but I want to write this book so I can go tell Darcy, like, I'm writing this book and I can have a reason to keep going. You know, like, it's kind of like you're justifying, you're like, you know, where's the painting? Here it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what do you think? All right, I'll go back and work some more. Um, and then I had that as well with um, an editor friend of mine, Amy Shoulder. Um, she, when she was the editor at the Feminist Press, their offices were in the Graduate Center, which is where I did my PhD. So I could also go see her in her office, you know? And I tried, I, to, I never forget like when I um, graduated from the doctorate program at the Graduate Center, I tried to do that again with one of my professors that I, I was quite smitten with. I really had a crush on him and, um, and he was great to me. And uh, he was my decadence professor, Richard Kay. And I just like tried to drop in to see him, just kind of like, I'm in the building and like, how are you? You know, just trying to have that like standard Darcy, Amy time. Right, right. And he was like, Douglas, you know you're not a student here anymore, right? Like, I like oh, I have things that I gotta got to do. Like, yeah, I just kind of an open door to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I took that list. I don't know that that I've tried to recreate that dynamics. <laughs> oh, yeah. But speaking of the library, I yeah, yeah. so I mean, it, it it hurts my heart that I just can't hang out at the library right now. Yeah, uh, during pandemic. But like I, when I was the reason I became just so fascinated with like writing and literature was it, when I was in my early twenties, I was just utterly depressed. A friend had just killed himself, 
and my sanctuary was the library and i was at the library every night after work and 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 i just there's just there's such a beauty to the library i yeah it's they don't take the library from me spiritual it's like our church i mean or maybe you have a church as well but i mean i know it's the church it's the church and i don't know you know the i'm I mean, I'm not going to make assumptions, um, but the Vim Bender films, Wings of Desire. Oh, yeah. Where, like, they, the angels put their hands on the people in the library, and it's like, yeah, yeah. we were, like, the scribes, like, doing, just copying out again, you know? <laughs> like, we're just kind of yeah. there in our quiet, and there is a blessedness to it, and it's it's that there's this hollowed space, and um, it's hard to still find now, you know, within these times. I've been doing curbside pickup and all that, but it's not the same. <laughs> I know. And, and I'm at the library, uh, do, you know, returning what I have. I'm always circulating library books through my place. And so yeah. they, I call them. I'm like, I'm coming to pick up. And they're like, yeah, yeah. What's up, Tony? Like, Is nobody else picking up right now? Is it just me? Are you, are you there just for me? Yeah. Being I'm waiting for them. Yeah, Wait, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm just saying I'm waiting for them to cut me off there as well to be like, okay, in normal times, we didn't mind that you requested, like, I have an amazing library system in upstate. Uh, uh-huh. York, and it's like, yeah. you can request anything, they'll bring it to you. And, you know, like, so I'm just waiting for them to tell me, like, okay, well, you used to, like, get 50 books brought to you. You can, like, we're going to limit you to two. And you need yeah. to turn them back in before you get more out, you know? <laughs> so, so much better to be cut off at a library than a bar, though. True, true. <laughs> So Vim Vendors, you were going to say something. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, not only am I a huge fan of that film, I've probably seen it 20 times. I got to interview him a couple times. Oh, wow. The first time I interviewed him, it was for Drinks to Tony, actually. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Is that is that a, an archive somewhere that I can um, find? It might, yeah, it might be. I might have put it on the back end. Because I've done this since 2002. And then I was doing yeah. it at a radio studio in San Francisco for a okay. solid, like, six or seven years. Uh-huh. But... um. But it was great because the first time I interviewed him, I was like, can we talk about uh, uh, West Berlin and Wings of Desire and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds? And he's all, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, he'd been talking about, it was, um, it was the one that was filmed in Butte, Montana. I forgot what the film was. He'd been talking about that to all the journalists all day. So uh-huh. when I brought up, let's talk yeah. about, let's talk about the Nick Cave crime of the city solutions years in West Berlin. And yeah. his eyes lit up. And he's like, okay. And I'm yeah. like, yeah. Because <laughs> this is what I want to talk to you about. It's beautiful. Yeah. But, but when I went to the library, here's what I used to, and I, and I did this when I went to bookstores. So before I even had, I, I thought I was going to be a published author by the time I was 25. Once, you, once you're like 22 and at the library, you're like, oh, cool. I'll get one of these in here in three years. Yeah. Little, little do you know, it takes a lot longer than that. But um, except in your case. But, <laughs> but it took them a while to get them in the library, but now that they're there, I'm just like, you know, all my UGA professors, I'm like, the book is in the library. It's in an archive. I don't care what you think about me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Getting in the library was the best thing ever. Yeah. The, um, when, but when I used to go as a kid, I used to look at where I would be in the Oh, story. yeah. Did yeah. you ever do that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Who were who you next to? Um, um, well, well, when my first book came out, that was, I mean, depending on your taste, I pr- imagine, although I think he's a really smart guy. Um, I had the, the, the circumstance of my book coming out the same time as like Steve Martin's Shop Girl. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so it would be like me and Steve Martin, yeah. which, which felt like its own kind of like, okay, well, you're not Steve Martin yet. You're not Steve Martin yet. Right. <laughs> what about you? But what's cool is your book is right up next to Steve Martin. 
So it's almost yeah. like you're standing next to Steve Martin yeah, in bookstores <laughs> and libraries throughout the whole world. It's true. There's something cool about that. Yeah. Mine was Lawrence Durrell. Oh, um, that is beautiful. Yeah, because I didn't know who he was. Yeah. And I went to the library, like, where would I be? I would be after Lawrence Durrell. And then I pulled his book out and started reading mm-hmm. him and reading Henry Miller and found out they had a, they had a good friendship yeah. together. And, Through Ana Isnan, who's one of my first influences. I know about oh, Durrell yeah. because of Ana Isnan, yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah. I, um, I, I had a, a author, Kim Krizan. She's like a mm-hmm. Anis, I always say it wrong. Yeah, yeah. She, oh, then, it's that, it's that uh, umlaut again. It's the umlaut over I the eye. <laughs> uh, but she's like a professor of her, and she just her book of her a, a book about um, her came out last year, and the author was Kim Krizan, who also co-wrote Before Sunset or Before Sunrise. Ah, I love that film. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna, I, I think I remember this book coming out. It's, it's is it called like The House of Anais? Yes. Or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm gonna look for that. Um, interview and I'm obviously definitely going to read that book. Yeah, yeah I was so much because that interview, I mean, that film was yeah. actually based on a real experience in her life with a Norwegian guy. Yeah. It was well, so much fun to find that out. If you're an Anais scholar, you know, you got the episodes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so much yeah. fun. My college boyfriend, like, got so much pleasure out of telling people, like, yeah, this is Douglas. He's an Anais Nin scholar. <laughs> like, oh, were you actually? Coded. No, I meant oh. that I was reading her diary. I mean, it's yeah, like yeah. she was the only person that I read at the time. But, I mean, I, I've always been some, somewhat, but, I mean, even though I went to a graduate school, two graduate schools, um, I've always been a, a bit of an autodidact, so I mean, I was maybe a self-directed on Eastman scholar. Uh-huh. <laughs> it was all the reading that I did, and I read around. I read the people that you would talk about, and it was just where I lived for my early twenties, for sure. There's such a there's such a joy to that because when it's not assigned to you at school, but you're doing it for pleasure. Yeah, I, it's and and we still get to do it today. I mean, I was I was what I was I was depressed. Well, this happens often, but I was depressed, yeah. and I was you know, about a year ago and I was walking to the cafe and I had my notebook and my book in my hand. And I was like, what the hell am I depressed about? Mm-hmm. 20 years ago, this is exactly what I did. It's exactly mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. And mm-hmm. it's everything I've ever wanted in life was yeah. to sit at a cafe, read a book and continue to write what I was working on or edit what I was working on. Yeah. And I just had this huge epiphany. It was like, dude, you've got what you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> what are you what are you depressed about? <laughs> Did it help? I mean, do you still do you still struggle with it? Is it still a battle? Or I mean, was that like a turning oh, it's, point? It's always a battle. No, it's always, it's always a, battle. a battle. But there's just there's just those moments where you just kind of come back together and go, Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Maybe I because you know, yeah, I even even after uh the film came out that I wrote, it was the, I went and the the reason why I do drinks with Tony again as a podcast. Yeah was because I was in deep depression when it got released. Yeah. It was kind of that Peggy Lee song. Is that all there is? Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, there's so much beauty and it's, it's, it's like too much. And then it's just like, but wait a second, I'm still me. So I sat down and was, when was the last time I was just really happy? Yeah. And I was like, oh, drink, doing drinks with Tony in studio. Okay, I'll just make it a podcast. Yeah. I get to I mean, talk to a- authors every week. <laughs> but you know, what, what is, right. yeah. Yeah, it's your soundtrack. It's your life soundtrack. Yeah, it, it's yeah. It, 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 it's like I get I feel like I get more out of it than anyone else does, and then I it just happens to <laughs> you know people happen to listen and people happen to show up to talk yeah. to me, which is just great. Those are hard. I mean, those are really hard cycles to get out of. I mean, I knew I knew like before coming on today that you had 
you know, had had these bouts of depression just from like listening to a few of the other episodes. And I was thinking like, wow, I guess I had that too, but I never classified it that way. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I just, but um, I don't have it to the degree that I had when I was working on like, say, Branwell, like in my, I think it was like my 20, like, it's kind of like 25 to 33 or so for me. And um, I still have like, m- you know, moments of like, <laughs> anguish but right. yeah yeah what what do you think helped you uh kind of move out of that i think it's like having my life set up actually it's it's being in the relationship that i've been in for like you know since 2008 now like a, a long sustaining relationship it was it was casting about in new york it was like i mean um you know I'm a, i would i live like quite a libertine and i really believe in that life i mean I, i'm very bringing up honeys again. I'm very, very yeah. of the body. And I mean, I, but um, I feel like, I mean, I was, I, I had a lot of compulsive behaviors. I didn't, it wasn't like drinking or whatever, but I mean, I was very, very into like a lot, a lot of sex, you know, mm-hmm. which I found very, I do find very inspiring and very charging. And actually I feel like it's a big part of, was at the time a big part of how writing actually happened for me. It was like imbricated in that. But I think, um, when there's not a life outside of that life, that's when the problems for for me, you know, like, um, like just like sadness that can happen occasionally, you know, and, um, and like not really having people in your life outside of people that you only know in one sort of exchange. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Kind of having your people around you. And it's great. You've been, I got divorced in 2008. So to be in a relationship that, since then, it's fantastic. Yeah, we're not married. He won't marry me. I want to be married. He just got his yeah. Italian citizenship. And I'm like, dude, you, ha- you get my health insurance. You need, you know, because we have domestic partnership. Here, yeah. I'm like, dude, you have got to marry me. Just, I don't care if you don't philosophically believe in it. I want that EU citizenship. Yes. yes. <laughs> Especially now. Yeah, I know. It's going to be, it, I, oh my God. Just the, the, the story of the passport. I didn't know that I had access to get a Norwegian passport up until yeah. I was 26. Did you get it? My grandfather. No, I didn't get it. Yeah. My grandfather poo-pooed Norway to death, but it was, he was there during Nazi occupation. Yeah. His whole family you know, uh, disengaged him or whatever. And so his, Norwe- his, his relationship with Norway was very fractured when, man, if someone just would have told me, dude, go get the passport. Just go get it. Yeah. Just go yeah. get it. And I... I would probably be just the same way as I am now, just with a Norwegian passport. I, you know, it's, <laughs> well, it's good to have options. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, if, if I was in a relationship with someone and they had a passport, I'd be like, <laughs> we're getting married. We'll sign the prenup right now. Yeah, so, there's, yeah. so there's no confusion because we can get divorced. But yeah. Let's stay married and, um, you know, and, and, and let yeah. the passport go through. There are economic dimensions to it that I don't understand that I think, you know, my partner's rightly leery of working his, fa- his parents who are still married um, through, you know, like now this person's in a nursing home, then this person's got no money because they're married, they'd have to right. divorce, did the state not take it. So I think it's a lot of like firsthand experiencing of that for sure. But yeah, man. Maybe if you give him the exit strategy. So yeah, you're yeah. married. <laughs> 
But look, here's the exit strategy. <laughs> we'll, we'll do this after the passport goes through. The minute the passport goes through. Yeah, yeah, then we're, yeah. This is how we're going to pull out of this, and none of that stuff's going to happen. The Italians look at my, like, like school records, and, like, he got a D in Italian? No, we're taking it back. <laughs> we're taking it back. Does your partner speak Italian? He does. That has been one of his, like, big pro- projects over the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, but I was going to say, too, like, I mean, I think, like, it's, I don't think it was too, even just being in a relationship. It's being in a relationship with somebody who understands the way the world works. Like, kind of stuff about, like, financial stuff. So I think it's, like, being with somebody who um, understands how money can be arranged or should be arranged in order for someone to not always feel like, if I don't do this tomorrow, I'm not going to eat, you know, which is yeah. how I really lived until I was, like, 33, 34, like, you know. Yeah. I'm learning the term for that scarcity thinking. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Where does it come from? Where do, I mean, where does it? Oh, for me personally, or just you personally, or just like, what is the idea? Like, is it's because well, you're brought up that way, or we don't think we deserve? You're brought anything? up that way, also not deserving. And I grew up a Jehovah's Witness, so doing yeah. anything monetary. If if you had the extra money, you use that to go convert other people to the cult. Mm-hmm. You know, essentially, yeah. Um, yeah. it's mm-hmm. uh. So I, I, even just, even in just having relationships, even just having relationships with friends who are not Jehovah's Witnesses, it mm-hmm. took me almost until, it took me almost until I was 30 years old where I can go, wait a second, cognitively, you're not other. And because yeah. and, and, yeah. I was other to everyone and they were other to me. So mm-hmm. I couldn't be friends with them. I could be friendly, but not totally friends. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, Everything I do now is just like, I'm just excited to be friends with people. I'm just, well, my God, I could just, I'm not thinking you're going to die in the next year because of, you know, more Jehovah coming down and zapping you. Yeah. That was a huge relief, but at the same time, it's a huge, um, you got to keep kind of going back and go, wait a second, why do I think like that? Oh, because of that. Yeah. And then the whole, and the Robin Williams Goodwill hunting. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> yeah, my version is like, why, why am I not Matt Damon? Why am I not Matt Damon? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Douglas, thank you so much for coming on yeah. the show. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah. Douglas A. Martin on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book from Soft Skull Press, Brainwell, a novel of a Bronte brother, and his new book on Night Boat Books called Wolf. Thanks for listening to the show. Coming up on Drinks with Tony, we have Mitzi Soreto, Lee Goodkin, D.B. Ramsey, Gad Sad, Iris Berry, and so much more. Please rate Drinks with Tony on the platform you use to receive your podcast, and remember to spay and neuter your children. I'll see you next Wednesday.